This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. In uh, this portion of our program, we are joined by Anna May Duane. Uh, she is joining us on our program and should be a very interesting discussion talking with us about the publication entitled Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. That's quite a title. <laughs> it's nice to have you join us, first of all. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. In your uh, background, you're an associate professor of English, director of the American Studies Program at the University of Connecticut. Uh, you've edited several previous titles, authored Suffering Childhood in Early America. Why this book at this point in your work? Um, it wasn't a plan, actually. It sort of um, this work kind of jumped out at me by accident. Uh, it came out of my other work. I consider myself a historian of childhood. I've always been interested in trying to figure out what it was like to live as a young person in the past, and it's a particular challenge to try to get to those records. Uh, we often don't preserve the records that children make, right? We put our kids schoolwork on the refrigerator, and then you know, it goes away after a month or two. It seems very ephemeral. Uh, and I was just sort of poking around in the archives, and I came across uh, the words New York African Free School in the 1820s, and my ears and eyes opened up and uh, because I was surprised to come across a school for African Americans in the 1820s, you know, 40 years before the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. And in these records were these incredible record of performances, skits, pieces of work that kids from 9 to about 14 had done in the 1820s. And I just started reading their work, and I was absolutely hooked. So to just give one quick example of the sort of thing I found in there, I found portraits of Benjamin Franklin. I found um, addresses to uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. One of the kids got to meet the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, but there was a speech of a, a valedictorian, and the first half of it was very standard, exactly what you'd expect, sort of, I'm very proud to be here, thanks to my parents, my teachers, etc. But the second half takes a completely different tone. He laments that it doesn't matter how smart he is or how hard he works, because the country is so rife with prejudice, he's never going to succeed. And I was just struck by... Uh, number one, what was it like to be that kid, to be this talented uh, 14-year-old young man on a stage in front of your parents and benefactors saying, feeling this hopeless? And what was going on at the school that you had both this sort of incredible talent and this sort of incredible anxiety, this sort of doubleness? And then once I started 
searching the names of the children who showed up in the records, it turned out they went on to do incredible things. So the two men I write about, one of them was in a lot of these little skits and records, he was a star student, uh, was James McCune Smith, and he is the first African-American to earn an M.D., uh, the other person who I trace their friends throughout their lives, it's a dual biography, um, is Henry Highland Garnett, who goes on to you know, give speeches to thousands of people and actually is the first African-American to address a sitting hall of Congress, which he does uh, as they send the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery sort of up for ratification. So I had no idea <laughs> what I was looking at when I just sort of stumbled on these records. And they sort of grabbed me by the collar and, and didn't let me go for 10 years. As you're telling the story, you were departing from what some might view as um, a standard practice when doing uh, something that's biographical in nature. Why did you do that? Right. Uh, so a lot of times I think in biography, we get, you know, maybe the first chapter on childhood, and mm. then we get, we jump on to like the big important things you do as grownups. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's history with a capital H. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the important stuff. Um, you know, and I think like even in the musical Hamilton, right, you get a couple of numbers where the wife and children are there, but it's, you know, the big stuff is separate. And I just found that wasn't the case. One thing, I mean, I found them as children, so that for me was a really striking um, difference uh, that, you know, these were children that when they went and gave their school reports, newspapers, you know, national press came out because the stakes were so high. There was so much investment in sort of seeing what they could do. Um, so they were, from the beginning, playing a part in history. And then as I sort of traced their lives, I just realized that their political activism, their professional careers, uh, their, uh, you know, what they did when they were in the halls of Congress was absolutely shaped by uh, both their own children and the sort of sense of uh, they were doing it for a future no one had yet seen, right? They were imagining a freedom, right? It, there's still slavery in the United States until like the last page of this book. <laughs> um, so for them, their political vision was about children. It was, so it seems silly to me to uh, sort of put childhood in chapter one and then leave it behind. And then, you know, just realistically, one of the things I uh, came across in my research that I find astounding is uh, throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, the majority of the country was under 21. So it was always a young country, the more children than older folks uh, doing all the stuff that we read about. I mean, the Revolutionary War uh, has lots of what we would consider now child soldiers. Um, so for me, sort of returning uh, or turning a lens on young people seemed the natural and sort of, uh, accurate thing to do when trying to tell their stories. There was a certain tension that seemed to be fairly constant surrounding this question of colonization between the two of them. What was that like? Yeah, that was, um, again, something that I found a bit surprising. So this, to really, um, when I started pulling on the contradictions in the school, this is what emerged. So colonization um, is one of those uh, things we like to think of as a footnote in history. It was this idea, it, um, Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. Uh, it becomes sort of institutionalized a few years later, 1817, uh, and it very much finds its heart in exactly 
the contradiction of that valedictorian, right? That the school itself had been created by Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and founding fathers out of this optimism that education can make everyone equal, that the country can change and evolve. Uh, and then the second half is right this coming up against a lack of imagination. And what's happening by 1817 is even sort of right-minded, what we would consider sort of liberal-minded white abolitionists can only go so far. They're like, they believe slavery is a moral evil, but they can't imagine a country where there's actual equality. Right? So they can't get past it. Okay, freedom, and then what? And they have no idea about then what. And the solution they come up with is colonization is this sense that, okay, we'll emancipate people and then mass uh, emigrate them uh, to Liberia. The, change, the location changes sometimes. It's Liberia for much of the, of the time, Africa. Sometimes they think South America. But in any case, we're going to give you your own colony. Good luck. We'll press, you know, rewind on history. We'll pretend this whole thing never happened, and uh, it'll work out best for everyone. Uh, and this uh, this is one of the, you know, in that title, I, I sort of uh, talk about them changing the nation. This is one of the ways I think uh, they do, they and their community, right? because at the school, uh, the principal and the board members start pushing this idea of colonization. They, they're telling the kids in the class, in these records, um, okay, you know, try as hard as you can, but you can't stay here. Right? You can succeed, but not in America. This is not your destiny. And uh, by the 1830s, uh, the parents who, you know, you've got to remember, are in a really um, difficult political position, they're largely impoverished. Uh, the school is a lifeline for them, but they refuse to send their children to the school. They're, they will not accept this version of the children's future. They don't want their children learning this lesson that they can't succeed here. And so they take on some of the most powerful men in New York who are running the school, and the parents win. And colonization is taken out of the curriculum, and uh, black teachers uh, replace the white teachers, and in that way they sort of change the terms of the debate. Uh, now that my two students were witness to all this, they saw their own parents, their own mothers and fathers stand up and say, colonization is not what we accept. Right? This is, we're going to, we only will accept freedom in this country. Uh, but this is an ongoing debate, and they take very different sides on it. Uh, and it both uh, sort of shapes what is, becomes possible as abolition becomes more and more of a reality, uh, and it splinters their friendship and their lives. This question of what should we do, stay here or should we go? What surprised you most in doing this book and uncovering all the information that you did about these gentlemen? Gosh, um, I was, what, maybe what surprised me most is the, uh, the, ex, the extent of the community and the political activism among um, African Americans in the years leading up to the Civil War. I mean, there's uh, several moments uh, with Henry Highland Garnett, who was considered at the time on a par with Frederick Douglass in terms of the power of his oratory, of his incredible charismatic speaker. And so, for instance, when uh, there's this very tense moment later in the book uh, when John Brown, who uh, basically uh, attacks, uh, you know, puts an attack on the South in the, in 
this moment which he hopes will spark the Civil War, right? It's this sort of guerrilla attack on a slaveholding family that he hopes will just sort of become a conflagration, and the whole country is completely on edge, right? This is sort of this incredibly tense moment, and lots of people are laying low because tensions are really high. Certainly as an African-American, you want to lay low because they're just they're trying to wipe out this dissent. They're terrified of insurrection. And Henry Highland Garnett speaks in New York City to a crowd of thousands of people. Uh, they're spilling out of his church, they're spilling into the street, and I just thought, I had no idea that there was this really vibrant, active, brave community of thousands. I mean, we think about the Underground Railroad as sort of this secretive, you know, in the cover of night, two, three people at a time. But there were people from the beginning, you know, whole communities, large portions of New York City and other places like Philadelphia and Boston, where you had a really active, visible community pushing for change. And that sort of surprised me because that's not a story I had come across that often. And the interesting thing about that, I was thinking about this as you were saying it, you know, especially in the age in which we live where, you know, we have all this information at our fingertips, literally in a 24-7 news cycle, et cetera. You think that there was this kind of community, there was this kind of interest, there had to have been communication that tied all this together. It's amazing they were able to pull this off. Right, exactly. In some ways, that you could get a gathering. I mean, exactly. There was no Facebook to tell everybody to be there. Right. <laughs> I know. I think about that a lot. I mean, I think. Um, in some ways, people were so productive, partially because I guess you, <laughs> you didn't have the distractions. But, I, I mean, I think street life was way more vibrant. It was just a lot more word of mouth. And um, news, I mean, a lot of the um, records that I found to do this work, because neither of these men wrote novels or narratives or anything, was newspapers. There was just an incredible amount of newspapers. They published every day. They published tons of stuff. Uh, you know, they didn't have Twitter, but at least my two men, when they disagreed, would get in the equivalent of, it looks a lot like a Twitter beef, uh, where they would just sort of have dueling op-eds. So I think there was this tradition of everybody got the newspaper, families read the newspapers aloud, or you went over your neighbor's house. Uh, so there was a lot, yeah, it, it does, it's one of the ways I think the past is really different and maybe has something to teach us, that there was just this sense of people talked to each other. You got the news from your friends uh, and you, you stayed in touch with a large group of people on a personal level. In doing this book, um, and by the way, we're talking on our program with Anna Mae Duane, who is author of Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. What are you hoping that those who read this book are going to take away from it? Ah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, one of the things that I took away from it and that I found personally inspiring, and, and I think in some ways resonates with their own moment, is, you know, to go back to their beginnings at this school, uh, these were the kids who the nation did not include, right? The, the system was designed to not pay attention to them. And their lives are sort of a response to the question of how do you gain power from people who don't want to give it to you? How do you get justice when a system doesn't even recognize that anything bad has happened? Uh, and how do you do it when you don't have 
access to money or standard political power. And you, these, um, in some ways, this is a harrowing story. They uh, go through lots of, uh, you know, hardships and obstacles. But they, by the end, they have done something that no one has done. Uh, they are doctors. They are orators. They are uh, addressing Congress and the president. That, uh, and I think it's largely through community connection, from learning from each other, from insisting on their own worth, uh, and pushing, uh, you know, pushing their own idea of freedom, not accepting what's handed to them. And I think uh, what I find, what I hope people take away from it, is sort of that that's possible. That was possible then, when you know, in the nation in which you, they weren't even considered human beings. Uh, so it's possible for all of us <laughs> to, um, no matter how powerless we might feel, that there are ways if we rely on our own uh, sense of worth and our own communities, uh, incredible things can happen. Pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. Um, mm. There's so many different things that come up in this book. Let me ask you about a couple of them. Sure. And we'll go back to 18... Um, 44, 45, that period of time, there was an address to the slaves of the United States. Why was that such a powerful speech? Right, that speech, I describe it in the book, because uh, it was very interesting uh, to look at the records and try to figure out what was going on as um, a black hole in the middle of this convention. So again, it was at one of these gatherings, they would have what was called colored conventions at the time, and it was... Um, uh, African-American men who would come from all over the country and decide, okay, what political action should we take? What's our best options? And Henry Helen Garnett that year gives the speech, and I call it a black hole because everything revolves around this moment where he gives this incredible speech, but you can't find the speech. And that's because they were they found it so incendiary that they were afraid to publish it. They actually uh, debate for two hours <laughs> about whether or not this should be published, that we need to change this. This is too dangerous. Uh, and it's an incredibly, uh, we do have it, they publish it five years later, uh, and I imagine it's fairly similar, but we don't know for sure. But in that speech, he says things like, uh, resist, uh, resist, uh, it is a sinful for you to, to submit anymore. And he's speaking to enslaved people. Uh, rise up, you are four million, you can't be treated any worse than you were already be treated, stop this right now throw down your tools and refuse to do this, and it can't get any worse. And uh, this, it seems, very few people had ever said this. David Walker um, was a, an African-American about 10 years earlier, had put out a speech like this, and he was dead within the year. Um, this was incredibly dangerous stuff. This is 20 years before the Civil War, uh, the standard idea of abolition at that time, uh, and including this is what Frederick Douglass believes and every, pretty much half the people in this hall believe, this is too dangerous. We need to change hearts and minds. We need nonviolent resistance. This is too, we can't say, rise up. This, well, you know, there'll be bloodshed. Uh, and so they, they sort of put it under wraps for five years, but he's, uh, what's interesting is sort of tracing the influence of this speech, right, which begin, people say they wept, people never forget it 20 years later, and we see that even from that moment, even though it's not in the text, it shapes the next 20 years. Uh, so when I mentioned John Brown 
who has this sort of attack on slaveholders, which is this incredibly um, powerful moment in American history, he points to Henry Highland Garnett's speech as something that inspired him. By 20 years later, everyone is on board with everything Henry Highland Garnett said, but he's one of the first to say it. Um, and he's just uncompromising. He's like, this stops now. Um, and the world wasn't quite ready for him yet, but I think we, um, it's one of those moments that push everything forward. Mm. February of 1865, um, Garnett stood before the House of Representatives. He was the first black man to address that body. Um, and to say the least, he didn't hold back. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, you know, that was sort of his personality to some degree. He never held back. I mean, that's what got him in trouble a lot of times. He always, uh, you know, ran right towards the heart of things. If there was a a fight to be had, he was going to be in the middle of it. Uh, And I think that at this moment, the war is pretty much over. The 13th Amendment is not passed, but it's um, being sent up to be ratified, so it's well on its way. And I think that maybe they thought this was going to be a celebratory speech, maybe a prayerful speech, you know, oh my, we've come here, the, the, the journey is over. And that's not the speech he gives. Uh, he gives a speech, uh, it, it said, you know, the title of it is Let the Monster Perish. So he doesn't see slavery as a monster that's dead yet. And a lot of it is um, exhorting, he does, exhorting uh, Congress people and the nation to... Uh, not relax their vigilance, that this isn't over yet. Uh, and he talks about the damage it's already done to the country. And uh, one of the moments I find most interesting is he talks about how slavery and the racism it created has made us weaker. He says it, it's made us uh, vulnerable to petty tyrants and princes who can uh, you know, play on these prejudices and this weakness and these divisions that, that slavery has created in this country. Uh, which I think in some ways is uh, still a really prescient um, observation about the country. He doesn't see it as over. He sees this as uh, the the work that still needs to be done, the damage that has been done, and the debts that still need to be paid. He thinks slavery isn't over uh, until uh, we can... He talks about acknowledging the excellence of all people in our literature, in our churches. Uh, he's Again, he's sort of, they have this idea of freedom of, okay, slavery is illegal, we're done here. And he, you know, as the, both of these men have done throughout their, their lives, they refuse to accept that definition. But that's not the end, right? There's, a, there's more here. We have more work to do as a country, uh, which I don't know. You know, I think people were... Uh, in that um, chamber were exhausted and thought they were done. And he says, no, we're not. And mm. I think he was absolutely correct. We're still not done. Now, it's interesting that, as I understand, Smith was not present for that address to Congress. Uh, did the rift between them ever heal? Right. He's very ill by this point. He's within months of dying. He had um, what we're imagining was uh, congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. Anna May Duane talking with us about the publication entitled Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. Thank you so much. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Catherine Gerbner. Uh, Catherine, in her background, is assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Uh, where she teaches courses on early America and the Atlantic world, the history of religion 
Now, that is an interesting idea in and of itself. <laughs> uh, Caribbean history and the African diaspora. Uh, she is joining us on our program to share some thoughts that go along the lines of some of the things talked about in her book entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Interesting title for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Lots of things that I want to ask you about, but I'm going to go back to something I mentioned in introducing you because this does intrigue me. On a college or university campus, talking about history and um, early America history. What's the response like from students? Do they get engaged? You know, they do get engaged, and especially when you teach history in a way that connects it with the present. So I found, uh, I found it really successful to sort of introduce, uh, you know, current events or things that are happening today and then connect them with uh, things that happened in the past. Um, you know, we can think about race today and see how uh, the idea of race has evolved over time. Uh, and students also get interested in things that they find to be totally inexplicable. So, you know, I teach a course um, called Magic and Medicine, and we talk about the history of witchcraft and trying to put ourselves in a place where you know, something like the Salem Witch Trials could make sense. Uh, that, I think, is very engaging for students. Um, but really, yeah, it, I mean, you just have to make history important. And I think it's not a hard task because history is very important today. Uh, and so as long as I'm doing that in my courses, I, I definitely find that students are engaged, they ask questions, and, you know, they come out of the courses feeling like they really understand our contemporary society better. Well, it's good to hear that, you know, you're doing something which, first of all, creates um, a process in education that I love when I spend time in college classes, um, because it's one of the things that I like to do outside of here. And that is to actually get people engaged in the educational process. It doesn't have to be something where you're just sitting reading words from a book that was written a million years ago mm -hmm. um, and is introducing ideas and concepts that are basically completely foreign to the young people who are reading them. Um, but to take this and make this something that actually relates to things today, I think creates understanding in a way. And, you know, it hopefully then can be something that's useful for them. Yes. In, in their lives today. Mm -hmm, exactly. Why this book at this point in your life and your work? Right. So why did I write a book uh, called Christian Slavery? I, I never really set out to do that. Um, this actually emerges from my interest in studying the anti-slavery movement and abolition. And when I began research uh, for what eventually became this book, I was trying to answer the question, you know, how did people combat slavery, and how did they create arguments, uh, successful arguments against slavery? And so I started by looking at the first anti-slavery protest that was written in the American colonies, and that was written in 1688 by a group of German and Dutch Quakers who were living in Pennsylvania. 
And actually, one of the reasons I was interested in this was because I went to school. I grew up going to uh, high school just a few blocks away from where that anti-slavery protest was written in uh, Germantown, uh, in part of Philadelphia. And um, as I did the research into this project, however, and into that document, I realized that the protest itself was rejected, um, and that was even among Quakers in Philadelphia who were some of the first anti-slavery protesters. You know, Quakers are so often associated as being, you know, an abolitionist group, but I was surprised to hear that in the 17th century, most Quakers actually didn't uh, support ending slavery, and in fact, most Quakers uh, in the colonies owned slaves. And so this was very perplexing to me, and I started asking different questions, like why did why did Quakers own slaves? How did they reconcile this with their theological commitments? You know, they were, uh, you know, a very religious and conscientious group of people. And I expanded from there to look at other Protestants and missionaries um, and how they dealt with slavery in the American colonies. And from there, I sort of started asking bigger questions about what role religion played in actually establishing uh, the system of slavery that developed in the English colonies, the uh, Danish colonies, and other sort of uh, Protestant colonies in the Americas. And uh, that's, you know, I just kept going, and eventually I sort of came to this understanding of uh, how important religion had been in, especially Protestant Christianity, had been in sort of creating the legal uh, foundation for slavery in the Americas. What about, because you talk about this in your work, the efforts to really, I guess, convert enslaved people to Christianity. Yes, this is absolutely essential to, um, you know, what I, am, I, what I researched. Uh, what I found is basically there were Quaker missionaries and other Protestant missionaries who, they, didn't, they weren't against slavery, but they felt that enslaved people should, should have the opportunity to convert to Christianity. Uh, and what they found was that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christians because we have to sort of go back into the 17th century. And at that time, um, to be a Christian and specifically to be a Protestant meant usually that you were a free person. And so it was very closely associated with uh, privileges and rights. Um, and slave owners did not want enslaved people having access to those privileges. And so this is a very different type of society than you know, what we usually imagine when we think of American slavery, and it's usually we think of the 19th century plantation south. Um, this was a very different story, and uh, religion played sort of the essential role in religious difference was the essential way to justify enslaving someone and keeping someone enslaved. And so it was very important for slave owners to keep that barrier up and to not allow enslaved people to become Christians. What was your impression or takeaway when you saw the movie a couple of years ago, 12 Years a Slave? Uh, yes. You know, well, it's, I mean, it's an incredible movie, and it really sort of visually depicts many of the uh, sort of the realities of slavery, in, again, in the 19th century. Um, and so I think it's a really important movie. Um, and, you know, it's coming out of a a, you know, an, an autobiography, right, Solomon Northrup's um, autobiography. And so it's a very well-done movie. But one of the problems that we have 
in our perception of, of American slavery is that it is so influenced by that period of time, right, by the 1830s, 40s, 50s, right before the Civil War, because that is when uh, there are so many um, slave narratives written, these autobiographies of ex-slaves, um, and you know, the way that Christianity is portrayed in that movie, you know, for those who have seen it, they may remember sort of uh, some of the slave owners using using Christianity as a, well, there it's as a justification for slavery, but it's also, um, you know, slavery or Christianity is sort of forced on enslaved people in some ways. That's not the way that uh, Christianity functioned in the early uh, early colonial period. So we have to sort of recognize that uh, slavery was not a static institution, and nor was Christianity. Uh, these are these are living institutions that changed over time. The justifications for slavery changed over time, and it's really important to see that the 17th century slave system. Um, was different from the 19th century one, but it also fed into it. And so they're connected, but it's it's uh, critical that we see the differences between them. Things like reading, writing, literacy, uh, those being an outgrowth, I guess, of, you know, how the lives of enslaved people uh, changed. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Yes. So, again, um, Conversion to Christianity was very closely associated with learning how to read and write. And this was a very, very powerful tool. You know, today we tend to take it for granted, right? Like everyone learns how to read and write. In the colonial period, uh, this was not the case. And uh, one of the reasons that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christian was because they associated it with literacy. And missionaries did teach enslaved people how to read and write in many cases. Um, This was also one of the primary reasons that enslaved people sought out missionaries, wanted to become part of Christian congregations, uh, because it gave them access to education. And um, so this was sort of a very critical part of this story. Um, And, you know, the fact is that it it was a really powerful skill, and I've found documents in, in the records that I've looked at that are, you know, one letter was uh, sort of written by a, a former slave, a free African woman living in the Caribbean in the Danish West Indies, writing to the Queen of Denmark saying, you, know, you need to intercede on our behalf. We're getting beaten for trying to be Christian, um, and this isn't right. So you can see how literacy and writing could be this really important and powerful tool for enslaved and freed uh, African people. Uh, over time, however, slave owners uh, recognized that this was happening, and missionaries who were very desperate to get the approval of slave owners to allow them to you know, evangelize to the enslaved population basically started to change what it meant to really convert to Christianity. And over time, they de-emphasized literacy, um, said, oh, you, nobody needs to learn how to read and write. We can just... Uh, you know, we'll just sort of read them the scripture, and we'll read them. We'll read them specific parts of the scripture that are about, you know, obedience. And so they tried to change what it meant to convert to Christianity to basically exclude literacy, learning how to read and write from that process. And so what we see here is actually a change in how people were defining conversion and true Christianity. Mm. There's so many different thoughts that are racing through my mind here as we're talking. We're talking on our program with Catherine Gerbner. 
Uh, she has joined us by phone. Her book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. I'm Bob Salter. Um, in doing the book, I often ask authors this question I'm going to pose to you. What are you hoping is the takeaway for people who read it? Well, you know, I hope there are a few takeaways. So one is that I hope that people come away, um, and this is some, I haven't quite talked about this part of the book yet, but one of the things I do in the book is I'm talking about the history of whiteness. You know, I, slave owners, Europeans, they used to call themselves Christians. And over time, they start to use this word white, and they start to enter it into their law books. Um, and it's really, they do so just as there's a large enough population of free black Christians that they could have been claiming um, basically voting rights or the ability to hold office. So I think it's really important, especially in this moment where there's a lot of discussion about whiteness um, and about you know, white supremacy, that we think about the actual term white and where, what its origins are. And I think that helps to inform our conversation today because it's more than just, you know, a part of our biology. It's more than just a social construct. It's actually, uh, it, it emerged and was created for specific historical and political reasons. So that's one takeaway. But also more broadly, I think um, the, I want people to see sort of how many different types of roles religion could play. Um, you know, religion could be used as sort of a tool for oppression, as we see it is in the law books um, that sort of specifically define enslavement as being justifiable for non-Christians. Um, it could also be used as a, as a tool for abolitionists to try to defeat slavery. Um, and it was also a really important role for those enslaved and free black people who did convert to Christianity. They were creating new interpretations of scripture. And, and I think that we have to hold all of these sort of uh, ways in which Christianity was playing a role in society. We have to hold them in tension and recognize that they were all, uh, they were all valid. They were all happening at the same time. And then I would say the last thing is that I hope that the, the research shows that, you know, these are, individuals were making decisions. You know, oftentimes we sort of, uh, we take our society at face value and we don't think about, um, I mean, for example, right, the, the idea of whiteness, that this was, that this didn't just emerge out of nowhere, that specific people decided to use this word, use this term for specific reasons. And in the same way, people have tried to you know, use, use terms, use scripture to combat slavery. So again, emphasizing the individual decisions that led to sort of the current state of affairs that we are in now, that's really important to me, and not thinking that these were sort of unthinking decisions or uh, sort of this was just uh, what was thrust upon people. These were uh, individuals making decisions that led to uh, concepts like whiteness. What is the reaction when you talk about this concept of whiteness with your students? Uh, with my students, you know, I, I bring it up in, in a way that I think is accessible and makes sense to them, and, mm -hmm. and they are very receptive. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't actually gotten very much pushback from students, uh, but I think that's also because I, I pave the way. You know, and I also, 
I, I make it, it's about, it's about them and it's about modern society, but I also make it clear that it's, it's not about, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, right? You know, I think that a lot of times people, you know, especially white people have this knee-jerk reaction of defensiveness when you start to talk about whiteness. Um, and that's often because they don't, they, I think implicitly they don't want to feel blamed for anything that happened in the past. And, you know, the, the way that I tell this history, it's not about blame, it's really about recognition, and it's about moving forward. And so I think when you put it in those terms and you lay out the, I mean, the facts, you know, you, you look at this history and you look at the primary documents, and I, I mean, I've been doing that research for 10 years, and I think that it just shows very clearly that there is this, uh, there, you know, that there is this progression into justifying slavery through race. And, uh, you know, it's when I show people, like, this is the law that was created in 1697 that specifically made whiteness a prerequisite for voting, that that hadn't been the case before. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to argue with that. Um, what I think is more difficult is talking about this in a more, um, you know, pub, uh, in the public sphere where you don't, you don't get to know people as closely and you can't, you can't sort of walk them through the arguments with as much care. So, you know, I published a, um, an op-ed in the Washington Post on this, sort of on this topic. And, you know, for the most part, I think people who are receptive to it were receptive to it. And then you get a lot of comments about, you know, uh, sort of unthoughtful comments from people who, who probably didn't even read the article that have the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, this is race baiting. Um, and so, you know, I think that that to me has really shown me the difference between trying to talk about this, these, these really sensitive issues on a college campus and within the context of a classroom where I can really sort of um, get to know the students and also sort of walk them through these, these sensitive issues versus uh, sort of just putting, putting an article out there on the Internet where, you know, People don't know who I am. They don't know what my background is. I don't know who they are. Uh, that's a it's a more difficult conversation to have, frankly. Mm. And this whole idea of, um, you know, somebody saying to you that what you're engaging in is race baiting. I mean, when somebody says that to you, does it make your skin crawl? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I frankly like I it does, but at the same time, I can't. I can't really do anything about it. I, I mean, I, my reaction is just like, huh, okay, well, that person's not open to actually thinking about anything that is, might challenge their sort of fundamental assumptions about the world. And um, I, at first it really bothered me. Now I kind of have to sh just shrug my, shrug my shoulders and, you know, move on and find people who, um, especially in real life, who are, you know, more more open to rethinking things and uh, and really being open to understanding our history and our and because that really is the only way to understand our current situation. Mm. When you're talking about this book and um, the work that went into doing this book, one of the things that I understood is that in part of the research for the book. You went through a lot of letters that actually were written by um, missionaries. You went through things like uh, travel diaries. What was that like? Yes, you're right. I read through hundreds of pages of uh, 
missionary diaries. Uh, when I was when I was very fortunate, I would find a letter from an uh, an enslaved or free black person. Yes, those are very very rare documents for the period I'm looking at. Um, and but you know when you spend so much time reading someone's diaries, even if it's you know a a missionary living in 1720, uh, you kind of get to you feel like you know them. Um, and so, you know, I would begin to talk to, you know, people who I, you know, people, my family, um, say, oh, oh, yeah, my missionary did this today or my missionary did that today. Um, and it's this, this fascinating way in which your, your mind becomes so, uh, so associated with the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries that it's, uh, it's, it's almost, yeah, it's sort of this bizarre dual reality that you begin living. But it was, uh, I mean, it is a fascinating, it was fascinating to research. Sometimes it's really hard because many times, you know, a missionary is doing something that I, I have great disagreement with or, um, you know, I wish I could go back into that period and do something differently. But as a historian, you just have to read through the documents uh, you know, come to an understanding of what was going on, and then you know, write up your write up the narrative as, as you see it happening. Um, but you know, so it's it's difficult in re- some respects, but I think it's also really important to do this this hard work. You know, a lot of the the research I was doing, it's in these are handwritten documents in the 18th century. Many are not written in English, um, but if you know, if we just keep writing the same histories over the, you know, the same printed sources that are easily available, I feel like we we miss a lot of what's really going on in the in this early colonial period. And so, reading these kinds of sources are especially important to understand the lives of people that we don't normally see. Um, and in the case of missionaries, these are these were people who are living, you know, on slave plantations, writing about their conversations with enslaved people on a daily basis, and so they provide an opportunity, even it's even though it's many in many cases through the lens of a missionary. Uh, as a historian, we have methods that allow us to sort of use that source, but to better understand the lives of enslaved people, you know, living in the 18th century. And so, it's a lot of work and a lot of effort to sort of read through the sources, but in the end, I think they, it provides a new historical perspective, especially of, of the lives of people who we don't normally get to see. Um, and that is what's so rewarding about doing that research. Mm. What was the, um, I guess, political impact of the idea of a free black Christian population growing? Right. So, uh, I, I sort of mentioned before how most slave owners did not want slaves to convert to Christianity because it was associated with political power and literacy. Um, but, you know, as I said before, also enslaved people recognized this, and and a small number, you know, not a majority, but a small important number of them were able to gain baptism, and then some were able to win their freedom. And so there was this small population of free black Christians um, who emerged as uh, in the sort of late 17th century, and they uh, began to sort of demand the rights that other free Christians who were property owners also had, and that was, you know, rights for rights to vote in elections and hold political office. And so, this was a really important shift uh, that started to happen in slave societies as free black populations emerged. 
And what I found is that the response from slave owners was basically to create a new barrier to political power, and that was um, this ideology of whiteness, right? So nobody talked about whiteness in 1650, but you know, 50 years later, in 1700, um, slave owners had, start to ins- had started inserting this word white into their law books, um, and it was a response to the emergence of uh, free black populations. Um, and so that then became whiteness rather than religious difference, became the new justification for slavery and also a new way to uh, create a barrier for free people of African descent. When we look at today in the modern world and look at, I guess, kind of the implications or consequences of some of the decisions that took place in the period of time that your book is covering. Um, What sort of things, I guess, stand out? Well, I mean, the entire, our entire sort of system of, um, the way that we think about race stands out as absolutely an inheritance of of this period of time. Um, uh, But more specifically, uh, the the relationship between race and voter suppression, I think, is is very powerful. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about voter suppression in recent years, as sort of the Voting Rights Act has been um, sort of slowly rolled back, and there's sort of this understanding that race and voter suppression have have a connection. Uh, what I think that sort of that's the specific history of um, of whiteness actually shows us, though is that it was voter suppression that actually provided the incentive to create the idea of race. Um, so, right, like the, the reason that slave-owning lawmakers started to put the word white in the law books you know, was I mean, specifically to draw up a new law to say you have to be a white Christian person in order to vote, right, to create a new, a new barrier for free people of color um, and prevent them from voting. So I think that this this perspective shows us that race and voter suppression, they're not just connected. Uh, voter suppression was actually the incentive to create race in many ways, uh, and specifically to create the idea of whiteness. So I think that really sheds a new light on the struggles of, about voter suppression today um, that I think are very significant. Most interesting book and discussion is so many different areas which... We could cover in discussion, literally go on for hours. Uh, the book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Catherine Gerbner, our guest in this portion of our program, as I mentioned in introducing her, she's assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota and um, the author of this book. Most interesting uh, effort on your part, is there another book in the works? You know, there is. Uh, right now, I'm, I've just started research on a project called uh, Constructing Religion, Defining Crime. And it's about what we, you, you sort of mentioned that I, I write, a, I teach about the history of religion. And, um, you know, the idea of what a religion is has a history, of course. Um, and in many cases, 
black religious practices, especially under slavery, were actually not, they were not defined by uh, Europeans as religions. Uh, instead, they were often seen as sometimes superstitious, and they were often criminalized. And so the next project is really looking at the the idea of what a religion is, um, how it has, how the boundaries have shifted over time, and how um, certain religious practices have been defined as criminal, um, and what that means for our understanding of religious freedom today. Well, certainly, good luck with that effort. Sounds like a very rewarding and also intriguing project, too. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for sharing this information with us in our discussion. Certainly, good luck with this book. Thank you so much. Rick Wolf's Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update, and Ed Randall's Talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. This is going to be a very interesting discussion. It's a good one with Cedric DeLeon. He is joining us. He's the director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of two previous books, The Origins of Right to Work and Party and Society, and co-author of a third entitled book, uh, third book entitled uh, Building Blocks, How Parties Organize Society. Uh, he, in uh, our discussion today, is going to be talking with us about the publication entitled Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. What a great title for a book. Welcome to our program. Thanks, Bob. That title, was that the original title for this book? No, that, that's such a great question. The original title of the book was Failure of the Establishment. Interesting title, that was. Why, did mm-hmm. you ch- why the change? I think that in my discussions with, uh, with the press, they thought that it, it just might feel a little bit too academic, mm. um, and that crisis would just be much more intuitive, especially uh, for folks who are... Uh, looking on as the present political crisis unfolds in the United States. Mm. Now, in your background, uh, before you moved into the area of of focus with academics, you were an organizer and a local union president in the American labor movement. Has that helped you in being able to navigate the field of academics? It has, in the sense that... um, that, uh, Academia um, does not take place um, in some sort of intellectual vacuum, right? Where where you just you sit there and have a great old time thinking and reading. It's just it, you know academics function within um, within institutions and have to deal with uh, with the employers uh, and managers uh, within those institutions, um, and so. You know, being part of the labor movement has given me a sense of, you know, how power works in organizations, and uh, I think it has helped me navigate um, navigate academia. Now, there are two political crises that your book explores in the history of this country. The first resulted in the Civil War, and the present one led to the election of our current president, Donald Trump. Um the premise of that exploration or that approach, why did you take that approach? This is also a kind of biographical question, because I had actually written a book about the U.S. secession crisis, or a book manuscript, 
And I took it to my writing group just to get some feedback. And one of my friends uh, asked me, well, where is Donald Trump in all of this? And it struck me then that people would read this book about the U.S. secession crisis thinking about our contemporary politics, and it really spoke to her. And I realized at that point that um, that this book couldn't just be about the Civil War and that I needed to say at least something about um, about our contemporary moment, what that crisis says about our current crisis. And, you know, in writing the book, my editor said, no, we need more. Give me more of, of, of the contemporary crisis. Really, really talk uh, about the, the different continuities. Uh, expand on those. Um, and then, it, you know, it really became a book, as you know, as, as you know, that is half about the, the Civil War and half about now. Mm. Well, you take issue with what has become the dominant explanation for the secession of the South. Why? The dominant explanation of the South is that the largest slave owners led the South out of the Union in order to protect their so-called property, to protect their slaves. And that is problematic for two reasons. The first is that that's not true. Okay, so, uh, you know, the largest slave owners were actually the the staunchest supporters of the Union. And it makes sense if you just stop to think about it, because the reason why they become so wealthy and powerful is because they have a very important business relationship with Northeastern industrialists, right? You have to sell those cash crops somewhere to folks who are going to manufacture those textiles. And their business partners were Northerners within the Union. So the Union was actually the source of their immense wealth and power, and they were not going to want to throw that overboard, you know, for some cockamamie idea of an independent Southern Confederacy. And so the largest slave owners actually opposed secessionism and the Southern rights Democrats. The other reason why I think it's uh, it's a problematic explanation for the Civil War is that it doesn't really explain the timing of the Civil War, right? If if the main cause of the Civil War is that the largest slave owners wanted to protect slavery, well, the largest slave owners want, had always wanted to protect slavery, right? Right to the beginning, right back to the beginning of the Republic and even during the colonial period before that. So the question then becomes, if that's, if that's the cause, then why didn't the Civil War happen in 1849 or 1826 or 1799, right? Folks who advocate that dominant thesis really don't have an answer to that, uh, to that question. You've made the decision to base or ground the story of the Southern Secession in the state of Alabama, specifically in Tuscaloosa County. Why that? location? Well, one reason is that so many of the stories that we read about um, are are about South Carolina, which is the first uh, state that secedes. And the assumption is that basically the, the rest of the South 
kind of mindlessly follows South Carolina in a herd. And that's that's not what happens. And I wanted to show, you know, what ha- how it had to happen internally with, with within a southern state uh, to make uh, such a catastrophic thing happen. And I thought, well, Alabama is is a is is a great example because, like South Carolina, Alabama was a vanguard in the secessionist cause, and you know, and we know this because the first capital of the Confederacy was Montgomery, Alabama. So that's that's why Alabama, right? Um, the reason why I chose Tuscaloosa is that you know, you know, folks don't know uh, or don't remember today that. Actually, Tuscaloosa was the capital of Alabama for most of the antebellum period. And so if you really wanted to know kind of, you know, what the inside scoop, what the skinny was on Alabama politics, you had to go to Tuscaloosa because that's where all the action was. And um, and so I was advised to, to go into Tuscaloosa and look at all of the records in the newspapers um, uh, of the day uh, to figure out what, what the politics on the ground uh, were. Mm. And when you look at um, the period of time, um, I guess, look at an area of like around the end of 1855, the Whig Party, and that's Whig is W-H-I-G Party, had splintered. Um, What was it that really destroyed it from the inside? Well, what destroyed it from the inside was... um, the Whig establishment's decision to become a nativist, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant party. By that point, people had been debating um, the status of slavery in the unsettled Western territories, which is a combination of indigenous lands and what, what was then still northern Mexico. So, you know, the country was really embroiled in a debate that the the Whig establishment, which represented, um, you know, these northeastern industrial interests and large slave owners, that the Whig Party really didn't want to have. They didn't want people to be talking about this. So they say, oh, I know what we can do. Let's um, let's capitalize on, you know, some of the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment on the ground uh, and maybe we can distract the American public into thinking about that instead of thinking about slavery. Well, this is this turns out to be a disastrous um, idea in uh, you know in hindsight, because when the Whig establishment does that, Northern Whigs are, are upset uh, because they don't want um, the debate to shift towards nativism. They wanted to stay squarely on slavery because many of those folks were at least against the expansion of slavery into the Western territories, and some of them were even abolitionists. Um, And so what they do is they found the Republican Party. Uh, And of course, as we all know now, the head of the Republican Party in the North becomes Abraham Lincoln, who is completely hated, you know, by by the South. So already you have a, a big problem. Right. The other thing that happens in the in the South is that Democrats 
start to smell something uh, funny, they say, huh, you know, um, the only people that we remember who, you know, whoever hated uh, Catholics and immigrants this much were Yankee abolitionists. We think you're in league with Yankee abolitionists. And so what happens in the South is that these Southern Whigs say, oh, no, don't, you know, that's not what we're up to. And just to prove to you that we're not in league with Yankee abolitionists, uh, we're going to leave our party and join you. So with this, this, you know, this interesting nativist turn right about 1855, as you say, what happens is the founding of the Republican Party, which ends up prosecuting the Civil War, right, and the abdication of Southern Whigs uh, in the South. And, you know, the Whigs, as, as I said earlier, were and, and, and the largest slave owners were the staunchest advocates of the Union. When they decide to leave the party, there is no institutional obstacle to the secessionists in the South, and that is what leads to the Civil War. If um, Abraham Lincoln... Um coming into office um, in 1860, um, basically at that point, did that kind of almost preordain the South's secession? I think I think preordain is a good word, um, and I and, and I and I sense where you're going. I I will I will say this: by the time Abraham Lincoln becomes president. The party system is so incredibly fractured that there is really no obstacle um, to, um, to secession. The party system is no longer actually set up to be a kind of moderate, establishmentarian, pro-union, that is, you know, the, the United States uh, Union. There is the, the, it's just incapable of stopping the forces of secession at, um, at that point. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln's election just, you know, you know when, that, when that happens, the South just loses its mind, right? It's, it is, you know, so, and, 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 and when, when, when Southern statesmen um, you know, are so offended by the election of this particular president, president, and there's no other party to stand there and say to them, "Listen, you know, I know you're upset with Abraham Lincoln, but you know, the Union is still our our best hope for a free society." So they thought, you know, and and for preserving slavery. I mean, there's just there is no there is no organization left to stand up and say that this is a bad idea, right? That that's what I would say. I I think preordain is correct, but just to put a little uh, a little bit of meat on that, that's what I would say. Mm. We're talking on our program with uh, Cedric De Leon. He is author of Crisis: When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. As I mentioned, he's the director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and we're pleased to have him uh, talking with us on our program today. Now, there's so many different areas that are uh, covered in this book, and you know, I'm trying to cover a number of different things, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around in history because um, time limits us somewhat. When 
we shift the focus more toward the uh, 20th century. There's an interesting situation that you talk about, which started really with Whigs and Democrats, and there was this unspoken agreement not to debate slavery in uh, the 19th century. Republicans and Democrats remained unspoken, uh, literally, on economic matters in the early 20th century. Then came the Great Depression, FDR, a challenge to that rule. How did that unfold? Well, it actually has a lot to do with uh, with New York and New York City, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, because uh, there were at least two major factions within the Democratic Party. The one um, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a part of was the progressive faction. Of course, there was a progressive faction in the Republican Party as well. And they did want to talk about corruption and inequality um, and um, the malfeasance of the corporate class in the United States. But they weren't the only people uh, in uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, the other faction was led um, by... Al Smith, who was a former governor of uh, the state of New York and um, who was the uh, presidential nominee for the Democratic Party in 1928. And he was dead set on a kind of class warfare style um, politics. And what he wanted to do was essentially debate prohibition. Right, and it's a pro. I mean, it was, alcohol was still prohibited uh, in the United States uh, at the time, and they thought that was going to be a winning strategy. And you know, going into uh, the Democratic National Convention of 1932, where as a spoiler alert, really not really a spoiler alert, because we know that Roosevelt won, it was really unclear at that time whether or not Roosevelt, with his message of the forgotten man, uh, during the Great depression was actually going to prevail. I mean, it's sort of shocking when you think about it in hindsight, because of course we needed Roosevelt and we needed an agenda, uh, you know, centered on uh, on the forgotten people of the, of the Great Depression. But the Democratic Party didn't necessarily think so. <laughs> and, um, and Al Smith's coalition uh, commanded a, um, a little over a third of the, um, of the delegations uh, in uh, in the party, uh, including, you know, the all important state of California, which is of course you know delegate rich, right? Um, and they and Al Smith's coalition called the two thirds rule, which meant that the nominee would have to um, achieve the support of at least two thirds of all those um, delegates uh, gathered. And honestly, Roosevelt had a hell of a time trying to get to two thirds. And and you know what ended up happening was um, was uh, Senator McAdoo from California eventually says this is this has gone far enough. I came here to nominate uh, our presidential nominee and not hang up uh, a convention. And McAdoo, um, who was uh, you know who had had problems with Al Smith in the past, um, uh, sh- show, just uh, shows him how displeased he was with with the former governor of New York, and he throws 
uh, California's votes to to Roosevelt. But up until that point, it was really uh, touch and go. And it's hard to just, you know, to contradict the the former presidential nominee of your party from the last election cycle. And so that with that, you know, very tense um, uh, decision, the Democratic Party slowly moves to, be, to you know, towards being the organization that we know now as the New Deal Democratic Party. And though it did have similarities to the lead up to the Civil War, the Great Depression didn't, you know, go the full route of crisis sequence. Why not? It it didn't uh, because the Democratic Party responded to militant workers and farmers and also third-party revolutionaries on the ground. I mean, this this is a very tumultuous time, right? You know, we had a we had a strike wave between 1933 and 34. That was the largest strike wave that the country had ever seen. I mean, and it and it was it was bloody. Um, people were out in the streets, openly supporting uh, the communists and and socialist parties. Uh, people were starving. Uh, mass unemployment. I mean, this was this was a really difficult time politically, and both publicly and privately, the political class was wringing their hands and saying, this sort of feels like a revolution to me. Um, And what ends up happening is that the Democratic Party responds to this popular um, insurgency from below uh, with a, a raft of social legislation. In 1935, they passed the National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, also named after a New Yorker. There are lots of New Yorkers in this story. Senator Robert Wagner of New York, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's really the, the architect uh, of, that, of that bill, legalizes collective bargaining and the right to organize for the first time in American history. Um, and then there's the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which helps certain farmers um, avoid foreclosure. There's the minimum wage. There's all sorts of different things that really cools down the popular insurgency from below. So we, we had a bubbling crisis, but the Democratic Party, through the New Deal, essentially contains uh, that that crisis, and that's why um, that's why we have containment instead of a full-scale uh, revolt uh, on the you know uh, on the scale of, for example, the the, the you know the southern uh, the southern states uh, in the Civil War. So let's move to today, and you know I mentioned in introducing you the beginning of our discussion today. That's part of the focus in this book, or part of your attention in this book, is devoted to Donald Trump's election. I guess the question becomes, how did we get where we are today? Well, I think it's important just to to say here, by way of prelude, that there's so many different explanations about the rise of Donald Trump, and most of them have to do with kind of social and economic change on the ground. You know, resentment about immigrants or the rise of immigration, rising economic inequality, globalization, and and these kinds of 
these kinds of answers. And, and the problem with those answers is that they don't explain why Donald Trump gets elected in 2016 uh, instead of before that. Because globalization and mounting economic inequality and, you know, immigration and all these kind of processes that, you know, that the country has lived through have been going on for quite some time now. And it's not clear why Donald Trump, based on that explanation, would not have been elected earlier. My explanation is uh, that Donald Trump is elected because Barack Obama's progressive agenda, the initial progressive agenda of the New New Deal, which he was swept uh, into power with in 2008, that when that New New Deal is suppressed by both Clinton Democrats uh, in the White House and by Senate Republicans in partnership with the Tea Party uh, beginning in 2010, that creates the conditions for Donald Trump's rise. And when we talk about those conditions creating that, I mean, realistically, could a move like that have happened earlier in our history? Well, I think that um, most of the time um, we're not in crisis, right? It's... um, and and so the election of somebody like Donald Trump, um, uh, sort of a renegade charismatic figure with no real ties to either major party, um, would not have been, first of all, nominated by one of those parties, let alone uh, be elected president. Right, because as we know, the American two-party system monopolizes, you know, you know, all elected office uh, in this country, and usually, they are able to impose um, a nominee or nominees at all levels um, uh, of government. But when the country is in crisis, and by that I mean when the American public really don't have much faith. Uh, that the that the government is going to do right by them. That's when parties are unable to to do that. That's when parties are unable to monopolize um, the system of nominations uh, for uh, for elected office. And 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 so so I would say. I would say that um, that that no Donald Trump. Uh, at least in the sort of modern party system after after the new deal it would not have been possible for him to be to be nominated or elected um just based on the on the on the argument that you know between between the depression and the current moment there hasn't been another political crisis on this scale now to the big question of the day where do we go from here I think that we need a pathway out of this crisis, and I do not think that the major political parties can lead us out of it. Because, you know, one of the reasons why um, Trump is elected is that, you know, Obama's agenda was squashed by both parties 
and social inequalities were allowed to grow and to fester. That's why you have the Sanders campaign, the Warren campaign, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, and, and, and all the rest of it. And so the question becomes, are the major political parties equipped to actually, or, or is there political will within the parties to actually address um, this uh, issue? And it's not clear to me that the parties are. My view is that what we need, again, as we had in the Great Depression, is a popular mass movement that can make the political parties respond to the people's demands for equity and justice. And, you know, when you think about it, um, every major step toward a more perfect union in this country, and I dare say any other country, has happened really because the people mobilized. Um, and, you know, and this is not, so, so, so what I'm saying is not some sort of, um, cockamamie, uh, fantasy, um, uh, because really that's the only thing that's ever worked, right? And I think also there are signs on the ground that people are, are losing faith in our political institutions, are taking matters into their own hands and collectively moving the party system over to them. Uh, the example that comes to mind is the Red for Ed uh, teachers uh, strike wave, which has been able to bring not just Democrats in Los Angeles and Chicago to the table, but also uh, Republican legislators in places like West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Kentucky. That's the kind of movement that I think we need right now. You know, we can't just keep waiting uh, for a politician to come in on their white horse um, and save us because, you know, they they never have. I mean, the the closest thing to like, you know, sort of the golden age of liberalism in this country is it was was um, or social democracy is Roosevelt. And even he was forced to advance the new New Deal, uh, excuse me, to advance the original New Deal by popular insurgencies on the ground. And I think that's what we need again. I think that the people can define the public policy agenda and address social inequality um, for a generation, uh, but they need to organize in order to do so. So would labor and the labor movement be the best way to lead us out of this crisis? I think the labor movement can and should play a leading role in this uh, new mass movement for a couple of reasons. Number one, they have the resources, right? The AFL-CIO and and the, the major independent unions like the Service Employees International Union, which is also a big player in New York politics, um, you know, they have the largest membership um, of any other labor federation in the entire world, bar none. Uh, so they have the resources and they have the stature, right, to um, to get things done. If only there's the political will to actually lead such a movement. Um, and the other the other thing is that when regular working people look around to see, well, okay, if the parties aren't here for us, who is? But, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that workers are saying, you know what, I, maybe our unions might actually be 
uh, the vehicle through which we can realize uh, some of our goals and deal with with our frustrations. And what we're seeing now is a kind of spontaneous turn on the part of working people back to the labor movement. Um, you know, in 2017, the number of workers who went on strike was 70,000 people. In 2019, over 500,000 people have gone on strike. That is a massive shift. We are living through, Bob, we're living through a strike wave of our own. And so I think the labor movement is positioned to do this, not just because it has the resources and stature, but because it's one of the only major kind of people's organizations on the ground that is, that is, that is fighting back um, and, and has some kind of visibility and, and, all, and has the respect, really, of, uh, of workers. Most interesting discussion, as I mentioned, it would be the author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, latest book from Cedric de Leon. He is director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. You know, I kind of gather you enjoy your work. I do. I really do, you know, and especially as as director of the Labor Center, you know, most of my students are actually rank-and-file union members, um, union staff, and elected leaders, right? I, I work with the salt of the earth, and they're here to get a graduate um, education in labor studies, learning things like labor law and em- employment law and organizing and collective bargaining. And it's really a privilege of a lifetime to, to lead this um this center because there are not very many organizations that really work to educate uh, working people. And, you know, in working with them, I'm sure there's a good deal of inspiration as well as, you know, realistically, they're keeping your feet to the fire on being on top of things, too. Absolutely. They're the toughest students I ever taught. You know, because you know, part part of the thing that you go in with as a as a as an academic in these, particularly in large state institutions like the University of Massachusetts, is you have a whole bunch of folks who just have never had any kind of life experience yet, right? These are eighteen to twenty-one year olds, right? They're just starting their 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 lives, and when when you when you teach workers, they come into the room with a whole lot of experience, right? And there are times when I teach you know a reading or something, and they look at me and they say. Uh, okay, <laughs> we we already knew that uh, because we're grown people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Certainly the best uh, continued with your work and um, best certainly with this book, too. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Bob. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Salter, joined by Dee Dee Hoffman. She is the author of Beautiful Bodies, The Adventure of Malvina Hoffman. Uh, she is joining us on our program to uh, share some thoughts in a number of different areas in uh, discussion. First of all, it's nice to have you join us. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, this book and also about a, a number of other areas. I understand you have a, um interesting background as well to bring to this discussion. But I guess, you know, I mentioned the the title of the book and introducing you. Can you tell us a little bit of why it was that you did this book, what this is about? Interestingly, 
the reason I wrote the book is um, my husband, whom I've been married to um, about seven years now, introduced me to Malvina Hoffman when we were dating. And I am an aficionado of art and have been to many galleries around the world and never heard of her. And when I saw her work, it's his great aunt. And when I saw her work, I was really angry that I never heard of her. And that kind of festered within me. And she had an an incredible story just as a human being. Her story is bigger than life. So I felt the need to bring her story out to the world. Okay, you had never heard of her. I'm going to assume... A lot of the people who are listening to our discussion today also may not have. Tell us a little bit about her. Malvina Hoffman in, was born as a Victorian woman in 1885, and she is a New Yorker. Her family were original Knickerbockers, and uh, her father was the pianist for the New York Philharmonic for 30 years. Her sister ran the New York Red Cross for 40 years, and so she was all all about New York. She also was a great artist, and she showed promise at a young age and wound up studying with Auguste Rodin in sculpture. That wound up being her medium. He took her in. He was 71. He took her in as a student because he saw great talent, and she wound up being his protege because he was at the end of his life and decided, I think when people come to the end of their life, they want to pass on everything they know. So she was the person that he passed everything on that he knew, and she wound up after his death installing the Musée Rodin in Paris. But more than that, she exemplified excellence and was the first woman ever installed in the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris in sculpture, which was a huge deal in 1919. There was only one American there before her. And the Nazis stole it in World War II, so she lost that legacy. People don't realize she was the first woman ever installed. She went on and um, during World War One, Herbert Hoover, who was not the president yet, but was in charge of helping end mass starvation in Europe, called upon Malvina Hoffman because her sister was the head of the New York City Red Cross. So, of course, she was involved with the Red Cross, too, and asked her to go to the Balkans, which is Serbia and Yugoslavia and that area, to help end mass starvation. So she went with um, another woman, And they went and spent six weeks going through this war-torn area where there basically was no food, no electricity, no shelter, lots of disease, still war skirmishes. And they helped end mass starvation with the reports that they gave to Herbert Hoover. And even in Serbia today, she's considered a hero for what she did to help end starvation. And in 1930... She has a big life, so there's a lot to tell. Mm -hmm. In 1930, the Field Museum in Chicago, which is an anthropological museum, commissioned her as an artist to travel the world in in three years. And in traveling the world, there were no airplanes back then, and she really didn't have telephones. And she went to the most remote corners of the world to actually sculpt 105 life-size bronzes for their 
Hall of Mankind exhibition. And she only had three years to do it. And she went on camel and on boat and on train and on uh, elephant and rickshaw, whatever means of travel was available. And she went to places where other Americans had never been except Charles Lindbergh had, had refueled in in, a key, a, um, in Japan. So she did this extraordinary three-year journey, sculpted 105 life-size bronzes in three years, which if you ask a sculptor today is impossible. It, As it stands, it is the largest bronze commission in the history of art that was ever commissioned and completed on time and on budget. It was such a success that until 1968 when it was taken down, so it was um, it was opened in 1933 and taken down in 1968. Over 10 million people saw her bronzes, and they were magnificent. Malvina Hoffman was also paid more than any man or woman ever in the history of art for that commission. Mm. So you can see why I was upset that I never heard of her. Um, after that, she had many, many large commissions, uh, many of the greatest collectors, in the country commissioned her, and um, she also went on to author three books. One of them became a bestseller. It was her memoir about her travels around the world. And when she died, she was so famous that she was a front-page New York Times obituary. She was a bit of a celebrity for her work and for her travels and for her authorship. So... She was a pretty amazing woman, and nobody's ever heard of her. Mm. You know, she was involved in so many different things. Um, Basically, it sounded like, just listening to what you were sharing with us, it's like she lived several different lifetimes. Really and truly, she did. And I found her very inspiring, because many of the things she undertook, she was scared to death. Uh, In fact, almost everything she did, she was afraid to go see Rodin. He turned her away four times, and she she kept going back. She went back five times before he would see her, and as soon as he saw her work, he took her in. And she did live many different lifetimes. She was a humanitarian. She was an author. She was a world adventurer, and she was a great artist. She was in the uh, she was a fellow in the National Sculpture Society, and in fact, her book, Sculpture Inside and Out, was the Bible for sculptors. I've, I've met many a sculptor today that'll pull out this out-of-print book and say, I know Malvina Hoffman because I use her book. That's how I, that's my Bible. So she did live this extraordinary life, and she walked through her fears. I found her so inspiring for that. Even though she was afraid, she never let it stop her. She found uh, the um, inside ability to rise above it and keep walking and keep going. And um, that meant a lot to me as I wrote the book. And an incredible pioneer when you consider the fact that, you know, some of the things she was doing as a businesswoman were taking place realistically before women had the right to vote. Exactly. She was a global businesswoman because she had um, uh, studios in Paris and in New York, 
and she was a global businesswoman before women even had the right to vote. She also had an extraordinary relationship with the prima ballerina Anna Pavlova. And Anna Pavlova, most people just know her from being a prima ballerina, but she actually owned her own ballet company. And she was responsible for keeping her company working and traveling around the world and making sure everything got taken care of. She and Malvina Hoffman became great friends. They were single women. This is before women could vote. And they were working globally, and Malvina Hoffman did all of her promotions, so her playbills and her programs. And Pavlova wanted to be immortalized in bronze, and so she posed over and over again for 15 years with the sculpture until she died to create a huge body of work of Anna Pavlova um, uh, in bronze. And also together they created a 26-panel bas-relief frieze that Pavlova wanted to wind up on the Metropolitan Opera House to immortalize her, and it was of the ballet The Bacchanal. And the New York Times art critic in 1926 compared Malvina Hoffman's study comparable to um, Michelangelo and Rodin for the amount of study that she did in dance and in body movement. It was a really great, it was a really almost a masterpiece, and unfortunately Pavlova died in 1931, and Hoffman couldn't bear to part with it, and she kept it in her studio the rest of her life. Quite an accomplished individual when you stop and think about it. Did this have an effect where, in a way, you could say it changed you? That is a great question. It changed my life in every way. But I usually don't tell people this, but first and foremost, while I was writing this book, I went through cancer treatment, and I had a year of chemotherapy and radiation and so many surgeries. It was ridiculous. I'm fine now, and but it took me five years to do the research and to write the book. And while I was going through the chemotherapy and trying to write this book and do my research, she went through much more difficult things than me in her travels around the world. And and I never felt that I could complain about my situation because if she could get through that, then I could get through this little thing like chemotherapy. When she was in Japan, her arm developed an infection. This was in 1930. And they had this new technique called radiation, and the doctor in Japan thought, oh, we can, we'll try this new technique, and they literally cut her arm to the bone and did radiation for five minutes at that spot for five days in a row, and they wouldn't give her any kind of anesthesia. So she was awake when they did that, and she passed out every time they did it. And I thought, if she can do that, I can go through my treatment. <laughs> so wow. she was very inspiring. And then she never gave up. She just was tenacious. And there wasn't anything that she said she couldn't do. If somebody brought her anything, even if she was like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do that? And it would make her scared. She suffered a lot of anxiety when she was doing these projects, but she just kept plowing through it. And so even with this book, I had a lot of naysayers, you know, people, there's a lot of people who don't want you to succeed. And a lot of people would kind of think that it was a, it was a lark that I was doing this, but I just never gave up because she never gave up. 
and I do feel like she was kind of hovering around me. <laughs> so I felt like she was forcing me to do this, but I had no choice in the story. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Dee Dee Hoffman on our program. She's the author of Beautiful Bodies, The Adventures of Malvina Hoffman, and she's joined us by phone on our program. What's your hope for those who read this book? There's a couple of things. First and foremost, my goal is to have Malvina Hoffman put back into her rightful place in history and art history. She was as famous and important as Georgia O'Keeffe in in the early 20th century, and they were friends. They would visit each other. They They corresponded with each other. She was a part of the Whitney Salon. She was, Malvina Hoffman was a big deal. She was considered one of the greatest sculptors. In fact, some people called her America's Rodin. So my first goal is to bring her back into her rightful place in art history before I pass away, because after I'm gone, nobody's going to care. And so I have a real sense of urgency to get that message out and get her back where she belongs. There are more than five women artists in art history, and Malvina Hoffman is one of them. The other, the other thing I want people to get out of this book is just to be inspired. This woman overcame many, many obstacles, uh, met her family passed away. She was a very young baby. Her parents were much older. She had teenage siblings when she was born. So everybody passed away while she was still very much alive. And she came from this gigantic family, and all of a sudden she was just one. So much of the work she had to do was as a single woman alone, without her family to support her, and she just kept going. And she she was very inspiring to me, and I'd like the listeners and readers to be inspired. When you look at extraordinary women who literally changed history, obviously she's right up there. Thank you. I think so. <laughs> at the top of the list. Yes. Who, who else would you point to? Oh, goodness. I... I have a few women that I always are my go-to. One is Elizabeth I, of course, who was the Queen of England. And uh, she. I actually have a ruler that um, is a ruler, and her face is on it because she was a ruler. And one of the reasons I love her is because she, like Malvina, nobody thought she could do it. She broke every barrier. They were trying to kill her. And she really was the ruler of the golden age of England. One of the reasons I love Elizabeth is she really changed the whole face of religion in Europe by going up against the Catholic Church at that time that was trying to keep her out of leadership. And so she was, she brought on the Protestant religion to not not fight with the Catholic religion, but to give people other options and still be respectful of the Catholic Church. So she really knew how to walk that fine line, and um, she overcame everything. Everybody was against her. Another one of my very favorite women who I think is overlooked is Billie Jean King, who is still with us, thank goodness. And she really, I just admire her so much. She 
of course, was a great tennis player. She was one of the greatest tennis players in the world. But she really was the champion for women's athletics. And because of her and her work for Title IX, the women today who are playing professional athletics and getting scholarships to college, it's all because of the work that she did behind the scenes. If it wasn't for Billie Jean King, um, my daughter wouldn't have been able to play Division One tennis on a scholarship. So those are the things that that she did that really mean a lot to me. And she also brought into the forefront the disparity of men's and women's payments for their athleticism, which hasn't really been fixed yet, but hopefully will will correct itself in the next few years. And I would be remiss to not talk about Harriet Tubman, who should be on the face of the $20 bill. She was uh, born a slave, and Harriet Tubman was lived from 1822 to 1913. She was an abolitionist and an activist, even though she was a slave, and she was able to break free from that bond and, and bring through her working with the Underground Railroad and an abolitionist, John Brown, they were able to really help end slavery and um, save the lives of many, many people. She actually was in the Civil War serving for the American Army. I don't think a lot of people know this. And she was a spy, and she helped lead an assault. She's a pretty amazing woman. And she was a suffragette along with all of that. And today she was supposed to be, she was voted on by the American people to be the face on the $20 bill. And they've just taken that away from her and said, no, we're not going to do that. And so it's a little bit of civil disobedience. Many women now are taking a stamp and it covers the face of Andrew Jackson and it stamps her face on it. And I just think that that's wonderful. So because she really is deserving. And then finally, I have to say Susan B. Anthony is um, an important woman in history and also with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And they were two women who really fought for women's suffragette. Susan B. Anthony voted when it was illegal to vote. And she was arrested and fined and women were beaten. And she really led the revolt to bring voting to women. And she passed away before women did get the vote. And and that um, has led to a really wonderful, um, a, a really wonderful voting experience for women every year when uh, they get their little stickers from the voting booth. The women who live near Susan B. Anthony's grave go to her grave site and all take their I Voted stickers and put them on her gravestone. And that's to honor the woman who brought about our ability to vote but never saw it. Um, legal in her lifetime. Mm. So those are my favorite women. There's so many more, goodness, but those are probably my top five. Dee Dee Hoffman, who is the author of Beautiful Bodies, The Adventurers of Malvina Hoffman, our guest this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us in our discussion and sharing some of these thoughts that you have. And also 
Um, certainly, we wish you the best with uh, this book. You have an interesting website as well at D.D. Hoffman. That's D-I-D-I-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, all is one word, dot com. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That does it for our show. Enjoy the day, everybody. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.